Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> I was hoping to do two verses, but we didn't quite get there. So, uh, but you'll see why in a minute when we get to verse 28 in particular. So, if you look at verse 28, which the Apostle writes to the Colossians, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Let's bow in prayer and ask God's help as we come and look at his word. Father, thank you for the scriptures that you give us. Thank you for preserving your word through the ages and for the opportunity and the privilege of having it there in front of us in languages we can understand, reflecting the truth of what you spoke through your apostles and prophets. Father, thank you. Now, Father, we ask for that ministry of your Holy Spirit, that he may take the words in your scripture and take them into our hearts so that we may respond from the depths of our being and faith and, and uh, trust and repentance before you, seeking to walk with Christ, that he may also guard my lips from anything which is unseemly or unhelpful, and so that we may be focused on Christ this morning. So, Father, bless us in this time, we pray. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us, build us up, challenge us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in a place so fascinating, so exciting, so engaging even, and so wonderful that you fail to see some of the dangers that are involved there? Imagine times when I've been uh, uh, snorkeling and you realise, like in Australia, you've got little things like blue-ringed octopus, which actually are really quite lethal, but they're in these little crannies in the rocks there, and if you're swimming along and you put your hand in the wrong place, it might be the last thing you do. You get fascinated and just carried away. And sometimes we see, sometimes in dramatic movies, we see the characters involved becoming so fixated on something in their quest for treasure or some other esteemed prize that they completely ignore the dangers around them, even to the point of being come so focused that they are reckless with their own lives. Well, I've, I've faced that kind of challenge in a sort of way. What did I do? I studied... Christian doctrine. I studied Christian doctrine. And I studied the teachings of the Bible and I became engrossed with the amazing details and logic of what the Lord has revealed to us there. And I became engrossed to such an extent that I possibly became blind to some of the dangers that lurked in such a study. Others get interested in the history of the Bible or the ethics of the Bible or the geography of the Bible and all this is valuable and important but it still may be a distraction from the main point. And Paul hints at this main point this morning. Not so much by what he says but also by what he doesn't say. So I want to open up this passage in verse 28 this morning and see how this has an impact upon where we are today. Now I suspect that some of you are sitting there saying... What's he talking about? How, how could the study of Christian doctrine actually be a trap for the Christian? Well, I'm not debagging Christian doctrine by any stretch, but you'll see in a moment. It's found in this phrase at the beginning of verse 28 where Paul says, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. You notice what Paul didn't say. He says, we proclaim the teachings of Christ. 
he says we proclaim him. And the gospel is about a person. It is about the person of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith involves understanding doctrine, which is just another way of saying teaching. We study the scriptures and learn what is taught there, but we do not stop there. We go on through that to an understanding of the person who is Jesus Christ. All the doctrine, all the teaching of all the scripture is designed to lead us to the person of Jesus Christ. We may have a good understanding of all the theology and all the geography and all the history and all the languages, but if that doesn't take us to the person, we've missed something. All the wonderful statements and teaching we find in the Gospels and in the letters about what Jesus did and what he said have one goal in mind, and that's to lead us to the person of Christ. Gospel, that's the first thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. The first thing, the Gospel focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. Person, the Gospel focuses on the person of Christ, the doctrines, The teachings are designed to lead us into this personal relationship with him. In John 17, Jesus in his prayer to the Father says this, and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And repenting of our sin and putting our trust in Jesus counts us as righteous in God's sight. He gives us new life, new eternal life, But the wonder of this eternal life is that it is summarized, if you like, in this relationship, knowing God and Jesus, whom was sent by him. And so through this person, Jesus, we are drawn into this relationship. Jesus' work on the cross was not an end in itself. It was a means by which we were brought into this relationship with our God. John, Jesus in John 15 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than someone lays down for his, his life for his friends. And he said to us, You are my friends, if you do what I command you. Jesus was focusing on that relationship between us. Now, many of you have spent time away from family at different times in your life, right? Okay, whether it's for a short time or a long time, from your spouse or children for a period. I remember back in the olden days, before uh, before telephone calls became so cheap, we did something else. We wrote letters. You might even have some of those tucked away at home, precious letters that you've had from parents or from your... uh, uh, husband or wife at certain times in their life. And these letters were received and read and treasured, not because they were necessarily grammatically wonderful, not because they were poetic necessarily. Did anybody write poetry to you? See what I mean? <laughs> not necessarily all those things. Why did we treasure these letters? Why did we read them? Because in the words we could hear the person. We could hear the heart revealed of the person who was writing to us. Imagine if somebody got a letter from their fiancé or their wife or husband and the first thing they did was to go through was a grammatical analysis of the letter. 
check out the geography, check out the postcode, check out whatever, and at the same time neglected to actually see and listen to the person of the letter. That was the danger I faced in the study of Christian doctrine. It's wonderful, it's amazing, and it's easy to forget in the midst of all the wonders of what was being studied. This was not just some kind of word game or puzzle solving or even some kind of theological Rubik's Cube where you put it all together and you think, I've got all this worked all out. The whole point of what was being taught was to lead us to the person into a relationship with Christ. He is speaking with me. Just as in the Bible, he is speaking with you. It is personal. It's to you. The one person to another. And Paul says, we proclaim him. We proclaim the person of Christ. My friends, we can easily still fall into this trap. In different times in our Christian life, we can sort of get tied up in the, 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 the nuts and bolts, if you like, of the Christian life and forget that at the center of the Christian life is still this person. Last week, David uh, Stuffel spoke to us about Jesus' resurrection of Christ as the first fruits, as those who raised from the dead. And Paul has spoken about this earlier in this chapter in verses 15 to 20, where he presents to us the Son, Jesus, as the head over all creation, and then as the head over the new creation. And as we look at the resurrection, we find that there is one logical thing which follows from the resurrection that we must have before us always. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, he is alive. Not was raised from the dead, he has been raised from the dead, but what flows from that is that he is alive. He is the one who is now at the right hand of God the Father, even at this moment. And in that place of authority and rule now, we're not dealing with history just. So much of what is there, we learn from the history of Christ. But the resurrected Christ is here to be known, not just known about. That's why we proclaim Christ in his person. John Eney comment on, commented on this verse saying, This Christ, so glorious in person and perfect in work, the incarnate God, the bleeding peacemaker, the imperial governor of the universe. It is he, none else, and none beside him, whom we preach. Not simply his doctrine, but himself. And he was preached not by Paul alone, but by all his colleagues. And Christ is the one and undivided object of proclamation. And if he be the hope of glory, no wonder that they rejoice to proclaim him far and wide, and on every possible occasion. Now this is personal. It is personal in the sense that not only are we talking about the person of Christ, we are talking about the impact it has on us. It's personal to me. There is a whole lot more, it's just a whole lot more than just an interesting study. It's more than just a hobby. It's more than just a pastime. If our study of the words about Jesus we find in the Bible do not challenge and transform us, we have missed the point. And we've certainly 
miss the person. Is the doctrine or teaching found in Scripture important? Of course it is. Of course it is. When your fiancé or spouse tells you that they're allergic to garlic and the scent of roses brings on coughing spasms, you'd better listen. You'd better listen. If you want to have a smooth relationship, you have to listen to that which pleases and that which displeases. So it is too when we come before God. The teachings in the Bible tell us that which is pleasing to our God, that we come in faith and repentance. That pleases God. He rejoices in that, that we seek to walk in faithfulness and fellowship. That pleases God. And the Scripture tells us what that life of faithfulness looks like. But we do it not simply because it's written there, but because it helps us grow in our relationship with the person. Teachers tell, teachings tell us of what the Lord Jesus loves and what he hates, so we must not ignore that. But Paul goes on to say, and he says, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Now, each word, each word in this passage is actually very important. So we're going to break it up a little bit and try and be as brief as practical. But let's briefly consider this term, we. Who's Paul talking about? Obviously, he's including himself, but who else is included? Well, one answer might be the apostles. Okay. Um, certainly they too were involved in proclaiming the Christ. This was the commission that Jesus gave to them. Was it just the apostles? I see you shaking your head in the negative, which I thoroughly agree with. Because it's obvious. If it was just the apostles, that when they died, the proclamation of Christ finished. Nobody else was commissioned. Even in apostolic times that did not work because the apostles didn't get everywhere. And even in Colossae we find that Paul tells us he never got there. If you read through chapter 2, he says, I've never met these people face to face. And so obviously there were others working with the apostles at that time who were the proclaimers of the Christ as well. And then after that generation passed, there were others also who became proclaimers of the Christ. And the whole church inherited this particular responsibility to be proclaimers of the Christ, to share the good news of Jesus with all who would seek to hear. And so the we we are talking about in, in verse uh, 26, 27 is us. We are us. Paul is talking about us. If we have received the grace of God that is found in the person of Christ, then we are part of the he, the we who inherit the responsibility to proclaim Christ. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Now, we're not all evangelists in that sort of uh, big ticket sort of name sort of thing, but we are to be part of the process, individually and together, of actually bringing Christ into our community and into the orb of our friends. And the second thing I want you to note very carefully is that we are the ones who are to share in this proclamation of Christ. We inherit this. So what does this proclamation involve? Well, some may be especially equipped and called to work as evangelists. There are those who would seem to be better able to draw alongside people they do not know and speak of Christ. I don't find that a, a, a strong gift that I see in myself. But at the same time, we have this exhortation that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy, who didn't see himself as an evangelist, but as a, a pastoral leader. And the, Paul wrote to him and said to him, Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, 
endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So even though it may not come easy, and even though it may not come as what we think of as naturally our gift, nevertheless, together as a church, we are to be involved in this ministry. The third thing we need to take note of as we go through this passage, he says, this proclamation of Christ involves warning everyone and teaching everyone. It involves content. It involves reminding people that they are literally in a place of danger. The word warning here, the word literally means to place in the mind, to bring to their attention, to advocate or to exhort, but particularly to warn and to uh, bring people to give notice beforehand, especially of danger or evil, by reasoning with them. The idea is to lay it on the mind or the heart of the person with the stress on being influenced, not only the intellect, but also the will, the emotion, and the disposition of the person involved. We are to impress upon people the seriousness of their situation. Outside of Christ, we are in great and, and eternal danger. If knowing Christ is eternal life, then not knowing Christ is eternal death. The eternal death is not ceasing to exist, but existing forever under the wrath and the righteous judgment of God. And so part of our calling as followers of Christ is to be involved in this process of warning people. And secondly, the other half of that is teaching. And the root of uh, this word is the root word for our English didactic. Didactic involved with teaching, giving instruction. And this involves the conscious imparting of knowledge to someone who does not know. It's not discovery learning because people will not discover these things by themselves. But by some means, we bring this to the attention of those who do not know. It is sharing knowledge, that which has been revealed to us by God in the teachings of the gospel. And I said before that you may have thought at the beginning that I was bagging out doctrine, not at all but it's a means to an end. We can get so tied up in the, the wonder of the teachings and forget who they're about. Yeah, you can imagine going through the old photo albums and saying, oh, you look wonderful 50 years ago, love. Imagine how well that's going to go down. <laughs> and look at the history and forget the present and the relationship that's there before us. Both of these verbs, warning and teaching, are participles, which is why the ING is on the end. They're ongoing things. They don't happen just once. They're part and parcel of the ongoing ministry. And they're in the present tense, which means it's now. The work is ongoing. It hasn't finished. It hasn't been completed. It does not stop. It's an ongoing part of the Christian life. Why are we to do this and why is Paul and others engaged in this work? Well, he says here is goal is proclaiming Christ is to bring every person to maturity or completeness in Christ. This is the fourth thing there. The goal of proclaiming Christ is to bring every person to completeness in Christ. We present every person. What does present mean? Well, you're getting a presentation at the moment. I'm presenting some words to you. But you may introduce somebody else to somebody else and you present them. 
And there's a presentation that's being thought of, I'm sure, in the mind of Paul in this, in this act of being brought before God as a recipient and trophy of grace. Because one day, Jesus Christ is going to present you as a Christian to the Father. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, that's us, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name, that's Father's name, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So I think the picture here is when that, that final and great assembly before God, when all the redeemed are gathered at the end of the age, Jesus is there standing in front of us, talking to the Father and says, Behold, I and the children you've given me. And Paul says on that day when we are presented before God, we are presented by Christ complete, perfect, whole. You're going to present everyone. Everyone. The message of Christ is for all in the hope that all will hear and believe and respond to the grace of God. You know, some have brought the criticism against the Christian faith because they believe it to be exclusive. That somehow people are shut out from the grace of God. This is not the case. God is an equal opportunity God. He offers grace to everybody. Everybody, without exception. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. God received those who practice homosexuality, though God received murderers, swindlers, and all these others. Then he goes on to say, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The challenge is that some people would put conditions upon receiving the grace and the mercy of God. And they say, he must accept me as I am. How dare he expect me to change, to stop doing what I want to do? Well, the essence of repentance is allowing God to change us. Recognizing that doesn't matter who we are because some of us are not more righteous than anybody else that regardless of who we are God needs to change us and we need to allow him to change us changes repentance is that change of direction and thinking in our lives because we see that our, as our lives as they exist at the moment we offend God now we don't have to change Or more correctly, we don't have to allow God to change us. But in rejecting that change, we reject God's mercy. Okay. 
it's not a good place to be. Why? Because all of us have fallen short of the goal God set for us. In Romans 3, Paul says, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No such thing as better or worse. We're all failures. And so in presenting everyone, all those, we are to offer grace to all so that anyone who wishes to do so may come and receive this. And so hence the need for proclaiming Christ. By ourselves, we universally fail and fall short of that mark set for us by God. And then he comes to this next word. He says, presenting everyone mature. This is the word for being complete, of being perfect, of lacking nothing in our lives. And coming to Christ, we are counted as complete in Christ. In our day-to-day lives, we seek to grow in this completeness and seek to live up to that completeness, which is counted as ours by God. And Paul enlarges this if we read through to chapter 2 of um, of uh, Colossians, you'll see there he starts to unfold what this completeness means. But let me just anticipate this a little bit. In Colossians 2 and verse 9, he says, For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The completeness of the Godhead was to be found in Jesus. But then he goes on and says, And you have been filled or made complete in him. It is in Christ and through Christ alone that we are made complete human beings. That we reach the ultimate of our humanity. Do you ever feel like something missing in your life? It's only ever going to be found in Christ. Now, I haven't climbed all the mountains in the world. Actually, I'll probably only count one. And I stopped after that. I thought, why, why break uh, my run of successes? Um, I haven't read all the books. Does it matter? No. But in that which is important, that which is whole, that completeness is found in Christ. And all the frustrations that you feel and all the frustrations that we go through, and all the challenges that we go through, and all the the times we're in anguish because we know that we have still fallen short, will be made complete in Christ, in the completeness of what he's going to do and work in your life. On that day when you stand before God, it will be with no regrets, no lack, no incompleteness, but that you will be whole and complete in Christ. And of course, where do we find this completeness? Well, he tells us several times, in Christ, in Christ. Where else? Where else? Through repentance and faith, we are joined to Christ in this risen life, now part of this new creation. But we've just begun this new creation. It's getting unfolded and uh, unfurled in our lives to bring that completeness on that day when we are presented before God. There is no other way in which we can be made clean and brought into the fellowship of God himself. It is in Christ and through Christ alone. One thing that is made clear 
in this letter that being a follower of the Christ cannot be looked upon as just an interest. It's not just a pastime. It's not something like a hobby. Being joined to Christ can only ever be as at the center of our lives. The connection through which everything else in our life is weighed up and evaluated and gains its meaning. This is personal. We are the first to focus on the person of Christ through what we are taught in his word and the scriptures. Our study of the scriptures is not for its own sake, but to bring us into a deeper fellowship each day with the living Christ. And it's personal for us as well. The following of Christ is not just part of our life, it is our life. It is everything to us. If our following of Christ does not engage us completely, then there's something lacking in our understanding and response to Christ. In that other reading we had this morning, Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Everything else, he says, is a losing proposition. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes purely through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by some means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Running on empty. In a real sense, it's only when we come to the end of our own resources that we start to realize who Jesus is for us. But let me quickly ask you a few questions before we finish. If you're running on empty and your life is missing meaning, have you truly come to Christ? because he is the one who brings and unfolds over a period of time that completeness, which is his goal for us. We can beat around the bush and we can miss the main point. It's only as we are joined to Jesus that we can even begin to have this completeness in ourselves. Second question, have you been distracted from your Christian life? That which is at the center sometimes gets push to one side because these other little toys sometimes get in the road of us actually developing that relationship. It's easy to get busy even in Christian things. But if that's at the cost of our fellowship with Christ, then we have got things wrong. Are you growing in your relationship with Christ? You know, relationships take time. Now, it's not like healing a wound where they just say, give it time, yeah, your scratch will get better. It's not like that. Give it time. Allocate priority to it in our lives, in terms of our day. And if we do not give time in each day to fellowship with him, then that relationship will not grow. It takes time. Your relationship with a husband or wife cannot progress unless you spend time talking to each other. Sometimes we choose to live in poverty 
when the riches of the fellowship of God is there for us. Him, Christ, we proclaim, says Paul, so that we may present everyone complete, perfect, mature in Christ. That's our goal. Let's pray. Father, we bow and worship before you. We are so aware of our inadequacies that even as your followers we fail. So, Father, we, we recognize and acknowledge our ongoing debt to your grace working in our life. Father, deep in our lives we would long for a deeper relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ that we may know him more and the power of his resurrection working in us now. So, Father, that we may bring you honor, that we may be in Christ in everything. Father, train our minds, train our hearts, train our hands, train our words, so that everything we may do reflect the truth that we belong to you and that Christ is everything to us. Father, By your Holy Spirit, lead us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.